Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Well, good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 1. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name is Mark, and we're glad you're with us this morning, and just encourage you to participate in worshiping of Jesus, however you feel comfortable, and we're just glad you're with us, and we appreciate your encouragement as well. Uh, We're going to be looking at John's take on the Christmas story, which is so unique to Matthew, Mark, and Luke's. Uh, Mark has very little, in fact, nothing to do with the Christmas story as he enters into the adult ministry of Jesus, and Luke and Matthew tell us the story. John comes at it many years later and introduces to us something very important for us to understand. When you think of Christmas, and today being you know, Christmas Eve morning, to be able to think of Christmas and how it's all aligning itself, what comes to mind first? Now, those of you who know me, no, this won't shock you at all. The first thing when I think of the holidays is food. It's just, I think that's, I mean, is there anything better than fresh-made gingerbread at Christmas? The answer would be no. That is the best thing. I think of holidays always associated with food. There's seasons of food. I found myself in other days saying, well, you know, I love summer food best, or I love Thanksgiving time, or I love Christmas time. I think the only season in all of our calendar that doesn't have great food associated with it is spring, and I'll come up with something one day, I promise you. But right now when I think of Christmas, I think of food, and the second thing is people. Who am I going to be with? Who am I going to see? Who am I not going to see? Uh, yesterday, uh, my family in Indiana had our family Christmas, and we were unable to be there, which is okay. I called my mom the night before because it was okay with everybody but her. And I said to mom, well, are you looking forward to this weekend? She goes, well, it just won't be the same, and I knew what she meant. Her favorite son wouldn't be there. Everyone would understand that. <laughs> I said, it'll be okay. We'll see you this summer. She goes, I know. We'll have a picnic. And, and she just asked about what the boys were doing and everything, and we were talking. But I could tell, knowing my mom, that in other moments in time, when we have a family gathering and one of us boys isn't there, to my, my mom, it's just not, it's not right. And then before I hung up, she said, love you. And I said, love you too. And she said, come and see us. And that triggered me. Come and see us. I think that's what John's trying to point out to us at Christmas, is how God came to us at Christmas. How that gift that we receive is the most unique gift you'll ever get in your entire life. Let me explain. If you look back through scripture, especially in the Old Testament, you're gonna see moments in time when God came to earth And delivered a gift. Sometimes the gift was wanted. Sometimes it was unwanted. But let me explain it this way. In Genesis chapter 3, God comes into the garden. And he comes into Adam and Eve. And he gives them the gift of redemption. He comes as their father. Restoring a relationship through a son he would send. Then in Genesis chapter 11, he comes to what we call the Tower of Babel. Man decided that they were going to build and reach up to God. And God smiled at him. Isn't that cute? And God came down to earth, the Tower of Babel, confused their language, and he brought them the gift of judgment, which was not a gift they wanted, but it was a gift they needed because it showed them what idolatry was and how he was the only thing to be worshipped. So he didn't keep them from worshipping something by ruining it. He showed them that what they were worshipping was ridiculous, and he brought judgment. It's like he came as a righteous judge. In Exodus chapter 19, God meets Moses on Mount Sinai, And Moses says, can I see your glory? And God says, you can't handle my glory, but I'll give you a glimpse. And the Bible says that he covered Moses with his hand and he revealed just a portion of his back. And Moses was changed. And he gave the gift of glory as mighty God. 
Isaiah chapter 6, he appears to a prophet named Isaiah who would become the one that would tell us about this Jesus we worship today. And when he appears, he appears inside a temple and he shows Isaiah through the prophecies what he's going to do and he comes as our wonderful counselor. This is what I'm doing, pay attention. So in Genesis 3, he comes as father and Genesis 11, he comes as judge and Exodus 19, he comes as mighty God and Isaiah 6, he comes as wonderful counselor and that's just four scenes of where God came to earth and then John, when he's writing his Christmas story, decides to take that and say, let me tell you about the time he came to earth and stayed. Words matter. In Genesis, said God spoke and creation came into existence. In the Old Testament, God spoke through prophets who relayed his words to God's people so that they would hear and respond. In Isaiah chapter 55, this Old Testament prophet Isaiah we've already mentioned, he said this, As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seeds for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Words matter. God says, when I speak, it will happen. It won't happen in your time frame, but I promise you that everything I've told you will come true, will come true. I'll speak it into existence just like I did creation. And the Apostle John, in telling the story of Jesus coming for us and to us, calls him the Word. Interesting. Words matter. John chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. In the beginning was the Word, the communication of God, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. This is who we're talking about. The one who came to earth was God. Not a junior God on internship. The real deal. There in creation, spoke all things into being. And in John chapter, or verse 10 of John chapter 1, he says, He was in the world. He was in our world. He, he lived in the world in condition. That's a huge statement. But often glossed over to get to more famous passages like John 3, 16. It's kind of funny. When Solomon built the temple, the most beautiful place of worship to exist to that point in time next to the Garden of Eden, this beautiful temple was built. And when Solomon was dedicating it, he asked a profound question. Will God really dwell on earth? He was saying, don't think we can fit the, the immensity of God into this box. As beautiful and ornate as it was, it could not contain the smallest portion of God. And I caution us, if I can, that when it comes to Christmas and all the unanswered questions you might have, be very careful that you don't write off God because you can't fit him into your mind either. Can God really dwell on earth? John says, yeah, he can. You see, he used to dwell on earth in the tabernacle, that, that roaming mobile home that the Israelites had as they went through the wilderness. And then they built a temple, and that would be the place God would reside. And then God said, I can come closer, and he came in a person, and Emmanuel, God with us. And he who created the world and holds it together has been promised since the Garden of Eden when God first came down to man to bring him a gift. He came. Verse 10. He was in the world and through the world was, and excuse me, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him and he came to that which was his own. It's a complicated sentence, but let me try to clarify what John is saying to us this morning as an encouragement. 
And what I'd like to do is take Soren Kierkegaard, a, a theologian who lived many, many years ago, and he wrote a parable called The King and the Maiden. I'd like to paraphrase that this morning to tell you what John is telling us. Here's the story. There once was a king who fell in love with a humble peasant in his community. The king was a king's king, powerful, humble. He had wealth, intellect, influence. He was remarkable. Lesser kings needed his favor and had no difficulty coming to him seeking it. But this mighty king was moved daily by something different. He had seen this beautiful maiden, this peasant girl in the poorest village in his kingdom, and he instantly fell for her. His heart went out to her and he felt love. He wanted to go to her and show her how much he loved her, but there was a problem. How would he do that? He knew that he could appear in his royal robes and his gowns and with the royal guard and carry her away in a carriage. And that would be romantic if this was a lifetime movie, but it's not. He could bring her to the palace and crown her with the best and give her things that she would never be able to experience in her peasant life. And she would surely not resist him. But the question he had was, would she love him? She would be awed by his splendor and tremble at the thought of such an amazing opportunity. She might tell herself that she'd be foolish to reject such a marriage proposal, but would she love him? Would she say yes and then feel empty and unsatisfied in years to come? Would she be happy loving him for himself and not for the titles or, of, or power or riches? He did not want this girl to love him as a subject. He wanted a partner in life, a queen whose love would know no restrictions whose voice would speak to him at all times without hesitation. He realized that love with her would mean equality with her. The love shared between them would cross the king and peasant divide and would make them, Kierkegaard's terms, unequal equals. That's what he wanted. It was them to be unequal but equal. He had to find a way to seek the love without overwhelming her and destroying her will to choose. The king realized to win the maiden's love, he only had one choice. He would have to enter into her world so that she would choose to enter into his. Only then would she be able to see him for simply who he was and love, her, love him rather for who he was. He must leave all that he had to become her equal. So one night after the castle was asleep, he took off his crown, removed his rings of power, he dressed himself in common clothes. Leaving through the door of the servant's entrance where no one could dis uh, discover this, the king left the castle and his kingdom behind. As the next day began, the maiden emerged from her tiny little cottage to meet a stranger, a common man with kind eyes who requested an opportunity to speak with her and in time hoped to love her as his own. Kierkegaard's story acknowledges that love is triumphant when it makes unequal things equal. And that's the Christmas story John's trying to tell us about a king who left to come into our world because we would not go into his. Read with me verses 11 through 14. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now pay attention to verse 13. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. That God was doing this work through Jesus. That it's the work that only God could do. Man could not bring it about. Lineage and genealogy could not bring it about. And people could just not purpose themselves. God had to do this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Again, God comes to earth to bring a present. 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. What? See, this is what John's been telling us. Years after Matthew and Luke told the story of Joseph and Mary and the angels and the shepherd and the wise men and the star, Mark goes right into the ministry. But John says, let me tell you about this man, this gift that God gave us. It's beautiful. What was the glory of Jesus? His inequality with us? No. Why did he come to live among us? To demonstrate how much more powerful and unequal he is to us? No. See, what I want you to catch this morning, I want to encourage your hearts with this simple truth on Christmas Eve day. The incarnation, the story of Jesus' birth, what we celebrate in Advent, answers once and for all the question, what is God's heart toward me? How does God feel about me? How does God feel about you? How does God feel about everybody? Believer and unbeliever. Sinner and saint. The incarnation, John says, is opening our imaginations to who this man who came as our gift is. And what does it say about us in the eyes of God? Verse 18. No one has ever seen God But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Quite interesting. If we pay attention to the Christmas story, this one doesn't have a donkey, doesn't have a star, doesn't have three gifts. It has one gift. It's a man who's to reveal to us who God is and how he sees us. So let's look at the four gifts. Because the truth is, I pray today, That if someone says to you, remember when we were kids, and someone say, what was your favorite present? What was the best present you got? I got my answer already. I hope it becomes yours too. Not just the poo-poo presents and what people sacrifice for us. Those are important, and those are wonderful gifts of love we'll receive these next few days. But when someone asks you what's the greatest gift you got for Christmas, just smile at them and say, Jesus. And I'll show you why it's great. Because Jesus came to reveal God's love and mercy. You want to know how God feels about you? He feels loving and merciful. He sent Jesus for that purpose. In John 14, verse 8, 9, one of the disciples said to Jesus, would you show us the Father? If you show us the Father, we'll believe you. And Jesus responded, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You want to know what God's like? Look at the life of Jesus. You want to know how God feels about you? Look at the life of Jesus. You want to know what God thinks about you and how he responds to you and reacts to you? Look at the life of Jesus. Because then you'll see that we don't have a distant God sitting on a throne who wants nothing to do with his poor peasant people. We have a God who looks at us like the king in the story with great love for his peasant people. And he wants them to be a part of his story, a part of his place, a part of his family. Like the king in the parable, love moves God. That's why John would write, for God so loved the world that he sent. He came down in human form, in flesh for us. He came as everlasting Father, wonderful Counselor, mighty God, Prince of Peace. He came to reveal the Father through his sermons, through his teaching, through his reactions, through his miracles, through his giving of love and healing. We learned who our God was. The world wants to paint God as a God who's out of step, out of time, and way out of culture. And I'm here to tell you, look at Jesus. He was none of those things. So if your opinion of God doesn't match up with what Jesus revealed, change your opinion of God. 
That's one of the gifts we got at Christmas. I brought up those four Old Testament references. and You may have wondered why I was doing that. Let me explain why. Because if you go back to Genesis 3, when God appeared to Adam and Eve and they were hiding in the bushes, when you look at Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, and how the people were scattered and ran in fear, when you go to Exodus 19 on the Mount Sinai, where, where Moses had to hide in the rocks from the glory and power of God, and you go to Isaiah chapter 6, when God appeared to Isaiah the prophet, and Isaiah's first response was, I'm a dead man. We cower. Whenever God came to earth and the glory of God came, we cower. Why? Because he knows when we've been sleeping. He knows if we're awake. He knows if we've been bad. He knows we've really been bad. And we cower. And yet, I want you to know that the beautiful part of the incarnation is he didn't come in majesty. He came in simplicity. He appeared as a soft-eyed man who loved a young peasant girl and entered into her world. 1 John 4.12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. How do you know you get God? You start loving like God. You start loving everybody because you've been loved so well. Jesus came to show you how God feels about you, nothing but love and mercy. Secondly, he came to deliver us from our death penalty. Now this death penalty Understand, it's not just something that somebody else did to you or unfair or, you know, you weren't the only one speeding. Death penalty was something you and I earned. We asked for it. We, we threw it all away. Like the king in the parable, he wanted to give us a better life. He wanted to take us from our poverty and our brokenness and being peasants. And he wanted to bring us in and count us as sons and daughters of the king. Luke 19.10. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And a true Christian, someone who really gets an understanding of what God did through Jesus and the gift of Christmas, the gift of the Advent, it simply understands this. If you can't say you were lost, then I promise you, you've not been saved. But those of us who understood what we did to our lives and what we deserved will sing the refrain, I once was lost, but now I'm found. It is amazing grace. But did you notice that when Jesus came, he didn't come to shame us. He didn't come to dominate us, to punish us. He came to bless us. When Jesus arrived, he didn't come and say, how dare you? I remember one time, I don't distinctly remember this moment, sitting down in the basement. I was in high school, probably a freshman or a sophomore, sitting down in the basement of our house. My brother got called to work and he left his dishes there. And my mom said to me, if you were a good brother, you would carry your dishes and your brother's dishes up to the sink. And I decided at that moment, I'm not a good brother. And I was like, yeah, you wouldn't do that for me. And my father came downstairs, and he heard the conversation. My dad just looked at me, and he said, take them upstairs now. And I did what every obedient child would do. <sighs> and I carried them upstairs. Some of us have this picture of God sending Jesus to earth going, I need you to go down there and give up your crown and give up your robe and give up your rings of power, and I need you to go down there into the peasant's world and live in that. And Jesus went, <sighs> He didn't, did he? He went, oh, I I got it. I love them. I'd be happy to. Would you say he's a good brother? Absolutely a good brother. Hebrews 2. We are people of flesh and blood. That is why Jesus became one of us. He died to destroy the devil who has power over death. But he also died to rescue all of us who live each day in fear of dying. He He came to take from us our penalty. 
It also says in Hebrews chapter 2, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. When I said that this truth of what comes at Christmas is not just for saints, it's also for sinners. He came to show you God loves you and wants to bring mercy for you and God wants to take away the penalty that you chose for yourself. Third thing he did is Jesus came to show or to bring many sons to glory. In other words, God wants you to understand and receive his glory. Like the king, he wants to share with us what was his. You see, there's an interesting thing about glory. When you think of the Father, Son, and Spirit, when you think about the, the unity of the Father, Son, and Spirit, what you understand is there's no competition. They defer to each other all the time. God shared his glory with Jesus and Jesus reflected the glory that he received back on the Father and the Holy Spirit comes and people want to make a whole lot of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit says, no, look at Jesus. And Jesus says, no, look at the Father. And the Father says, look at the Son and the Spirit. You get this. When there's real love, there's no competition. You're not fighting over who got most and who got what. Jesus said, I want you to understand, God wants to share his glory with you, but he wants you to understand it. Hebrews chapter 2. Everything belongs to God and all things were created by his power. So God did the right thing when he made Jesus perfect by suffering. As Jesus led many of God's children to be saved and to share in his glory. Jesus and the people he makes holy all belong to the same family. That's why he isn't ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. He's a good brother. His coming was to change us, to cleanse us, to prepare us. He came to gift us. Not only would we not receive punishment we'd receive blessing paul says in the book of ephesians that he counts us as joint heirs whatever jesus will have received from the father for doing what the father asked he's going to share with us the sons and daughters who didn't do what the father asked because of his love and jesus came to satisfy the promises of god in romans 15 verse 8 9 christ has become a servant of the jews on behalf of god's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. His mercy showed how. When I was a kid, when they first became popular, it was one of my favorite toys of all time. I had one of the original G.I. Joes from the 1960s and I had it in the metal locker that it came in. Now, some of you in the room right now are going, really? And I'm like, yeah. Others are like, what? Trust me, I could retire right now if my mother hadn't thrown that away when I went to college. Now the crap she kept is ridiculous. She's got colorings I did in kindergarten, which wouldn't get you a nickel from anybody except her. And she got rid of baseball cards and G.I. Joes and Matchbox cars made of real metal. I mean, the truth of the matter is, I sometimes, to torture myself because I got a lot of time, I'll go on eBay and find out how rich I should be. But I'm not, because my family decided that something that proved to be greater value down the line was really incidental now, because, and she was right, I went to college, I'm not a kid anymore, I'm not going to play with G.I. Joe's, but I still would, and they're gone, and stuff that doesn't matter at all was kept, and I don't get it. I look back on that, and sometimes I'm sad about it, and I stop and think that's the perfect picture of what Christmas means to me. I gave my soul away. The most valuable thing God ever gave me, my soul. And I threw it away for temporary pleasures. I threw it away for things that didn't matter, that had no value at all. And I kept garbage that had no value. And I found myself 
growing up and looking at my life and going, what did you do? And you see, here's what you can't do. You can't go on eBay and buy your soul back. But you can go on eBay if you've got enough money and buy a G.I. Joe in a locker. And you can go get a Mickey Mantle rookie card. And you can go get an Ernie Banks card. And you can go get whatever is your passion. You can go find things that the world deems valuable. You can find them on eBay, but they're going to burn when it's all over, aren't they? But you can't get your soul back. And the greatest gift you received at Christmas was a God who came to tell you that I love you and I'm merciful towards you, that there is a penalty you deserve, but I'm going to take it, that you deserve no glory, but I'm going to share everything with you. And lastly, that every promise that God ever made is now yours, every promise, even the ones that don't materialize in our lifetime. Trust me, when it's all said and done, they're going to come true, and you and I are going to look at each other and just chuckle how little we knew about God and how much we loved him anyway. You see, there's a story. Nancy Dugan was adopted by an American couple from a third world country. And she wrote a book called A Need for Another Christmas. And she shares this wonderful story. She was four years old when she realized for the first time what Christmas was. She'd been adopted from this third world country. And her adopted parents were Christians. And they tried to introduce her to Christmas in America and also understanding what it means in the Christian realm. Nancy had a wonderful time. It seems like every person who ever came to her house brought her a present or a toy, loved on her, and gave her gifts just because they loved her. She said, a few days later, Nancy's mom was trying to figure out if she captured it all, and so she said to little Nancy at the age of four, the mom relays the story, she asked this little four-year-old, she said, did you have a good Christmas? And the mother reported that little Nancy looked at her mom and said, I sure hope Joseph and Mary have another baby. (laughs) And that's what we all want. Because we know that you can say, Christmas, I know what the preacher's going to talk about. Stars, donkeys, virgins. He's going to talk about this. They do every year. Please understand. When we totally get it, when we let John's understanding of the gift God gave us in this one who created the world, giving up the ring and the crown and the robes and the power to enter into the peasant's world, to live with the peasants, to invite us back. Why? Because he really wanted to know, will they really love me? like I love them. And we know, don't we? And there's nothing embarrassing about reminiscing and remembering the beauty of the story. Isaiah would say it this way. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and uploading it with justice and righteousness from time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Every promise, every promise, every single promise is coming true in Jesus Christ. Nobody else. No other way but through Jesus. Every single promise of God is ours. You want to know how God feels about you? Every promise of Scripture is yours in Jesus. You've got to receive the present. And Christmas is just not remembering. It's not just a religious service before we go crazy on unwrapping gifts. Christmas is simply remembering we've already received everything we need in Jesus. And the rest of this is all beautiful, but not as important. What's most important is for us to pause and thank God for the greatest gift ever, understanding how much he cares for us through his son. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. And I wonder today how many people that we're going to get with over good food, 
in good company. When we gather together, well, who's coming over? When we answer, ask and answer those questions, may we offer them the same hope that draws us together today. May 2017 be the gift that we give to others, which is just the promise that Jesus is good to all people. And they should know what Jesus gave them at Christmas too. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.